Welcome to In-House Legal with attorney Paul Boynton. It's everything in-house, legally speaking. Technology, business practices, trends, and controversies important to corporate counsel. Welcome to Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today to In-House Legal. I'm attorney Paul Boynton. I covered the in-house legal community for over six years as a publisher and editor of in-house publications and now have my own media consultancy. Today's show covers layoffs and lawsuits. The steady drumbeat of grim economic news shows no signs of abating anytime soon. Unemployment numbers keep rising as companies are shedding workers at an alarming rate. In-house lawyers are front and center in making sure their companies don't run afoul of laws that protect workers during layoffs. With the job market souring, companies will undoubtedly be facing a surge of lawsuits. With us today is Brett Cohen, an employment law specialist and partner at Mince Levin in Boston. Brett will help us decipher what's needed to keep your company out of trouble. Welcome, Brett, and thank you for joining us today to discuss with us this very important topic of layoffs and lawsuits. Thank you, Paul. Well, Brett, let's just jump right into it. Uh, What are the potential claims that employees can assert in the wake of a layoff? Well, the most common claims that I'm seeing today are discrimination and wage claims. Discrimination claims usually take the form of I have been treated differently uh, based on my race or in some states, for example, my sexual preference. And the wage claims are where employees seek to look backwards at the way they were treated economically during the course of their employment, particularly with respect to commission sales uh, persons. And they seek to, to try to take advantage of the employer at the end of their employment. And are there also uh, statutes in place that are designed to protect employees? Sure. So the statutes at issue primarily are Title VII, which is a federal statute, and then most states have uh, statutes designed to protect employees that seem to overlap in many ways but provide for different remedies than the federal statutes. In Massachusetts, that's Chapter 151B, uh, and that, of course, varies from state to state. There's also, uh, for example, in Massachusetts, as well as the federal law, uh, protecting the prompt payment of wages of employees, and those are the two places where I'm seeing the most litigation. During the layoff process, what are some more common tripwires and warning flags in-house counsel need to be wary of? Uh, Clearly, the most important part during a layoff is the selection criteria that the in-house counsel and their HR department are using. And then it's very important to apply that criteria in a way that is uh, uniform and as objective as possible. So my advice to in-house counsel in, in, in proceeding with a RIF or a layoff of some kind, is to make sure that the the criteria that they're selecting is such that could be held up to scrutiny and withstand a challenge later on by a former, uh, now disgruntled employee. Well, can you explain that a little bit more in uh, detail? In other words, you're saying avoid subjective decisions and really try to focus on and document objective uh, decisions? Right. So let me add a little bit to this. So once a decision is made to let go a certain percentage of or certain number of a workforce, it is my recommendation that criteria be laid out by uh, and between with HR uh, and with legal counsel uh, that will um, help uh, make it as clear as possible that the decision-making process was free of any discriminatory animus. So, for example, 
the more objective criteria you pick, the less uh, likely it is that your criteria will uh, be successfully challenged. If you take, uh, uh, if you take, for example, length of service, and that is the criteria you're going to use, and you're going to let go everybody in the company that's uh, been at the company one year or less, it'd be very difficult for uh, for an employee that's part of that reduction in force to bring a successful challenge, uh, saying that the that the, the riff or layoff was discriminatory because you've picked a totally objective criteria, length of service. Um, the more subjective the criteria becomes, the more likely that criteria will be subjected to, uh, more likely it'll be, be successfully challenged. What's an example of a subjective criterion? Okay. Uh, one would be performance. So especially where performance is being judged on subjective standards. If you have a salesperson and that salesperson's um, sales are perfectly uh, subjected to uh, numerical calculation uh, without any subjective input, well, you know, that, that, that feels pretty objective, right? On the other hand, if you have, you know, administrative assistants at a company and their criteria is based on whether or not the, the, the individuals that they support, you know, appreciate their services, believe that they're doing well at what they're doing, that feels a lot more subjective than just picking numerical data that sales that salespersons are generating. Um, that's the, probably the best example that I can think of that would do it. Whether somebody's liked or disliked within an organization, believe it or not, has been uh, has been used before. I think in a, I think badly as a as a uh, as a type of um, criteria to use for the layoff. That that will subject yourself to uh, severe scrutiny later on. Uh, we haven't really touched upon uh, the the Federal Warn Act and the so-called baby warns from the states. Do you want to describe that a little bit and what uh, employers should be paying attention to? Sure. Uh, and again, for each one of these, you should seek outside counsel on this because it does vary from state to state. Uh, but generally, in the Warn Act, uh, the Federal Warn Act requires where you let a certain number of people go within a certain period of time that you're required to give them advance notice uh, of the reduction in force. Um, I think the idea is that that then gives them an opportunity to get uh, training and find other employment, et cetera. Um, but the uh, specifics of those, in so many instances, uh, vary from state to state. It would be difficult to go into that because uh, many states have their many warrant acts, as you alluded to, that provide greater benefits than and protections to the employees than the federal one. But it's something to be leery of, especially when um, – a company makes a decision on day one to do a, a riff on day 15 of a substantial number of people that might trigger the Warren Act obligations. And in those instances, I would just suggest that you seek outside counsel to make sure that your your reduction in force complies with the, with the Warren Act. Now, in-house lawyers play a vital role in uh, making sure that their companies aren't getting into hot water. One aspect of uh, reduction in forces and layoffs are severance and uh, waiver agreements. Uh, why don't you provide our listeners some tips on what you think is uh, an airtight severance and waiver package? Sure. Um, in this particular, there's been a great deal of litigation on what is or is not a, uh, a, a waiver or severance agreement that's enforceable. Uh, a couple of different thoughts that I have based on my own personal experience as well as on the case law. One is, uh, first of all, the Older Workers Benefits Protection Act lays out a very clear criteria of what must be included uh, in, a, in, a, in a waiver that will sustain a um, that will sustain scrutiny. Uh, there's a case out of the Seventh Circuit called 
Isbell, the Allstate Insurance uh, 2005 case, and marched through what the criteria is. I suggest that that case be looked at. Um, one particular point of interest, um, and and one that I have used effectively, is the use of and applying the severability clause. Now that clause is the provision that says, in essence, that if any part of the release is found invalid or unenforceable, that the rest of the agreement will stand on its own two feet. The one thing I'd ask in-house counsel to think about is, what if a court finds that the release language, that is what's really the benefit to the company, is found to be uh, invalid and enforceable, but the rest of the agreement now still stands according to most severability clauses? My advice is to make sure that when you do your severability clause that you put in language that says if the release language is struck, that you go back to square one and that the the entire agreement is voided. Because if you don't do that, then you lose the entire benefit uh, of the agreement to the company. I hope that that made some sense, Paul. Uh, Absolutely, Brett. And uh, your feeling is that that sort of uh, proviso would uh, stay in muster in court, what you were just discussing? My, I have yet to have it challenged, but uh, nobody has come up with a better way to address that complicated issue, at least that I know of, uh, and uh, I'm hopeful that it will, and I've discussed this with a lot of my colleagues, so it's worthwhile trying. Second, secondly, um, the entire agreement modification clause in agreements. Oftentimes, um, it, employers have non-compete, non-solicitation, and other agreements that is their expectation will survive and continue on even after a reduction in force. Um, it is my advice that you make sure that if there are those agreements in place, those non-competes, non-solicitation agreements in place, that in the entire agreement um, clause, you make sure that you carve out that those agreements will continue on after the execution of the severance agreement at issue and survive the execution of the severance agreement at issue. Another point on this is consider seriously an arbitration clause to include in your severance agreements. It is uh, something that um, has uh, both pros and cons. Uh, The pro is um, you obviously avoid usually the aberrational uh, verdicts if it's ever challenged because it's not likely that an arbitrator's going to award you know excessive uh, amounts of money to a plaintiff. Um, that's the, certainly the common wisdom, um, and a lot of people believe that arbitration is a more cost-effective form in which to litigate these matters. Um, the flip side to that is uh, you uh, once you arbitrate and you agree to arbitrate, um, that there's very uh, very little rights of appeal. And as one federal court judge uh, said to, uh, to, to me once, you know, your client chose second-class justice, they're going to get second-class justice. It would not hear, uh, take seriously an appeal of an adverse arbitration decision. So, but at least it's something to consider um, in, in weighing your options relative to a severance agreement. Thank you, Brett. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, we will talk more about layoffs and lawsuits with Brett Cohen of Mince Levin. Are you interested in sponsoring in-house legal or other programs on the Legal Talk Network? We'd love to have you on board. Contact our sales department today at 781-551-9960. Legal Talk Network has been producing award-winning legal podcasts since 2005. 
Subscribe to our RSS feed and start downloading today. It's free. We're proud to tell you about a special legal podcast series called Legal Tips from the ABA Tort Trial and Insurance Practice section. It's all about creative approaches to old problems that arise in the practice of tort and insurance law. You'll hear about the TIPS Leadership Academy, diversity initiatives, and plans for the TIPS 2009 annual meeting. Legal Tips starts in February, right here on the Legal Talk Network and the American Bar Association websites. Welcome back to In-House Legal. I'm your host, Paul Boynton. We are joined by Brett Cohen, employment law specialist and partner at Mintz Levin in Boston. Brett, we were talking about uh, some of the specific provisions that you are advising uh, that should be included in any sort of uh, severance and waiver agreement. Uh, are there any other provisions that uh, you would like to share with our listeners? Sure. It's, uh, in, in this instance, it's actually less of a provision and more, more of a mechanism. Uh, Everybody should understand that whenever you're letting go more than one person at or around the same time, that triggers certain additional obligations relative to the releases. Um, and one of those uh, requirements is that there's an exhibit attached to the to the release that lists the job titles and ages of all the individuals individuals uh, eligible or selected for the reduction in force. Um, uh, and the ages of all individuals in the same classification or organization unit who are not eligible for the selected program. The reason why I say that is I, I recently was presented with a release that was prepared by another law firm that looks like it's going to be litigated, and the exhibit itself did list uh, the job titles and ages of the people that were part of the reduction force, but failed to include the second part of what I just suggested, which is the list of individuals by age and job title who were not picked. Now, the reason for requiring this under the law is that it gives those that are selected an opportunity to compare him or herself to those that are not selected for the reduction in force to see if there's, you know, potential age animus uh, present. Um, and that's what the lists are supposedly uh, supposed to provide. Um, in this instance, um, in the case that I've just been asked to look at, the, the latter half wasn't provided. So it's important to remember to include that list as well. The second uh, point that I'd like to make is, as most in-house counsel should be aware, that you know if you're over uh, if you're over 40 years old and you're giving a re- release, whether it's part of reduction in force or not, you are given seven days after you execute the uh, agreement in which to revoke your signature. Uh, and uh, and in other words, uh, in other words, strike the agreement. Now the one place where I, and I had this issue happen a couple of years ago was how do you prove that somebody did not do something? That is, how do you prove that a uh, former employee did not execute or did not revoke their signature? Well, the way I have addressed that from that point forward is I include a certification. Uh, and then that certification is included in the agreement. Certification says merely that on this date, um, which is now seven or more days after the execution of the agreement, I have not revoked uh, a, uh, my signature on the severance agreement. And that must be sent uh, to usually in-house counsel or, or HR um, within a date certain in a, you know, in a, in a uh, registered mail or some signature required form so that there's proof that that um, executed uh, uh, you know, uh, non-revocation period, period uh, document has lapsed. 
and we have it present. So you've succeeded in uh, proving the negative. Um, so you're succeeded in proving the negative, exactly. Uh, let's uh, sort of ratchet it back a few steps. What processes or preventative steps should in-house legal departments be thinking about and implementing uh, to help their companies uh, avoid liability in the layoff context? So uh, like all employment issues, it all comes down to good HR practices. Um, one, one issue which can't be addressed that well in the context of a reduction in force, but it's very important, is to make sure that your review process, your yearly or, or, or biannually uh, process, is conducted um, in an open and honest and fair way. And the reason why this is really important is if one of the selection criteria is going to be performance, when you come time to do a RIF, you, you have to hope that the, that the reviews were done uh, appropriately. What I see is, and I'm sure this is familiar to everybody listening, um, in an artificial inflation of, uh, of the reviews of individuals. And when it comes time to do the reduction in force and the managers faced with keeping uh, person A or person B, and they want to keep uh, person A, uh, but the reviews are exactly the same uh, between A and B, um, and B happens to be somebody in a protected class, uh, if we're going to use um, quality of work as a guideline, or at least one important guideline, at least on paper, uh, that criteria is going to fail. And so it's very important that employers and in-house counsel and HR insist on honest and fair feedback in the course of these written evaluations. Um, that's one, one thing. Secondly, is that when managers are making the decisions as uh, to, to which employees they want to keep, it's very important that the HR person and the in-house counsel uh, kick those tires hard so that it's so that they're challenged. They challenge the manager um, on the criteria that they've used to select individuals to make sure that that criteria is uh, void of any discriminatory animus. Uh, what I mean by kick the tires, I mean sit down with that manager and say, uh, I want to understand exactly why you pick person A over person B. And the person says, well, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's quality of work. Well, let's look at, let's look at each of their reviews. Numerically, the reviews are the same. Um, it, you need to explain that to me. How is it that you're picking one person over the other in light of the fact that, that objectively these reviews appear to be um, identical? Uh, the manager has to have an explanation for that, and the, and the explanation needs to be appropriately documented so that, you know, six months or a year down the line, if this issue is litigated, there's, you know, an, an objective understanding for what occurred and how the decision was made. So I would say probably the most important thing that an in-house counselor can do is really challenge, and, and you know, the, the Socratic method, as we all learned in law school, uh, the individuals making the decisions on the ground level as to uh, how they made the decisions, what criteria they're using to make the decisions, and when those criteria, such as in the example of the reviews, don't start Stand, uh, stand up to scrutiny, that they better have a good explanation for that. And if they don't, then the criteria and the approach needs to be revisited. Uh, that sounds uh, like a big challenge, but uh, tremendous advice. Uh, let's talk about the, put this in context of an actual uh, RIF, the announcement of it. Uh, or do you have any tips on such things as you know, how a company should announce the layoff, how it should be announced, uh, what should the announcement say, when should it take place, that sort of thing? Yes. Um, there's 
a variety of schools of thought on this. Uh, it's, it is, and I don't think any of them is perfect. I think it all depends on the size of the workforce, uh, the, the kind of workforce that's impacted. Uh, most recently, um, we chose to make the announcement uh, on a Friday morning. What I will tell you is I think um, that the majority of the people of the company knew that something was uh, going to happen on that day, and it was likely going to be a reduction in force of some kind. So I'm not sure it was a big surprise. Um, but the way we chose to do it by by way of individual not individual but by well, managers met individually with um, with those that were affected um, rather than doing it by email or the like because we felt that that was too impersonal uh, in this particular instance, we also chose to have um, security. Uh, that was uh, not in uniform, but was present um, and available on a moment's notice. In one, in, in one outside in the parking lot, and one actually inside. And the reason for that uh, was less because of a general concern, but more because of a specific concern with respect to a specific employee who uh, we believe uh, you know had a reputation for having a, a bit of a temper, and we were concerned about how he was going to react when he found out he was part of the group. Um, in that instance, I think it was more to make the manager who was delivering this news more at ease than the fact that there was a real concern about it, but it was better to be safe than sorry. Um, I think that the more people that you have that are part of the reduction in force, um, the more uh, I'm going to recommend that there is security present in one form or another, and it doesn't have to be overt, but at least to have somebody there in case something goes awry, because as uh, your listeners will understand, there's tort liability on behalf of a company who who does not take reasonable steps to protect to protect its employees. And if something were to happen and there was any knowledge in advance that something bad could happen, uh, the employer could be liable. And I'd rather err on the side of being safe than sorry. Uh, Brett, we have a minute to go. Uh, If you can, in that uh, short time span, uh, if the the company is hit with a lawsuit, uh, what steps should in-house counsel take to uh, help minimize potential exposure? do is make sure that there's a litigation hold place on all electronic information relative to this employee. That will prevent the accidental destruction of information that could assist in the case, as well as prevent a court later imposing sanctions on the uh, on the company. Secondly, um, there should be a call to counsel to make sure that um, that those that have the most knowledge about this matter, um, their statements are taken and that information is preserved so that as this litigation progresses, uh, that witnesses who may become uh, unavailable or disappear, their testimonial-like is locked in so as to protect the company in the case of litigation. Thank you, Brett. Uh, All tremendous information that you provided to our listeners, and thank you for joining us today to share your thoughts and insights on layoffs and lawsuits and how in-house lawyers can effectively advise their companies on this pressing issue. Thank you very much, Paul. I appreciate being here. We hope you'll join us for another in-house legal show. Thanks for listening today. I'm Paul Boynton, host of In-House Legal, your online source of the news and information in-house lawyers need to stay ahead of the game. Thanks for listening to In-House Legal with attorney Paul Boynton. Hot topics for the in-house lawyer, legally speaking. We hope you'll listen to the next edition right here on the Legal Talk Network.